Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I will admit that I'm fairly ignorant about the environmental movement and the climate change movement. I'm still uncertain about what goes in compost and what goes in recycle. I don't have an electric car, and I have what are probably a bunch of stupid questions, but I suspect I may not be alone. Do solar panels work on a cloudy day? Is wind power effective if it's not windy? So these are things that uh, uh, I suspect I'm not alone in not knowing some of these things. I do know that the weather is changing in what seems like potentially catastrophic ways in recent years, recent weeks, months, and years. But I have very little clarity from a social change standpoint about what's happening and what we should do. I am glad that I was able to play a small part in laying the political groundwork for some of these big changes by supporting Stacey Abrams and the work in Georgia over the past decade that led to the election of Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff and flipping control of the whole U.S. Senate so that we could pass historic climate change legislation. But is that a good thing? What do we do next? In the words of Martha King's last book's title, where do we go from here? And so to give us some insight on where we go, we are joined by one of the most important leaders in the environmental and climate movement today, a brilliant thinker and writer. Um, just one sentence in this piece she recently wrote, a very significant piece in the, uh, uh, Hammer and Hope. She says that, quote, we need to give people concrete experiences of climate policy materially benefiting their lives. And that really resonated with me. So I'm very excited for this conversation. It's my first time meeting our guest. And for this conversation, I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you? And you want to introduce our guest. Hey, Steve. Doing great. I'm looking forward to the fall beginning. It's one of my favorite seasons. And I'm really looking forward to talking to our guest today as a mom. First of all, I know what goes in compost. <laughs> so <laughs> Maybe I'm going to feel I'll like, well, it's sort of feeling like I know some things about the environment. I, do, I care. I try to follow as much as I can. But I know what you mean. It's also really easy to feel overwhelmed. What I was thinking is as a mom, I often try to balance between feeling overwhelmed and quite hopeless and, you know, a lot of fear, um, anxiety, and really trying to balance that with instead of just getting reactive from all the scary news and the disconcerting news related to our globe and the environment, trying to balance it with seeking out voices like those of our guests today who have insight into solutions and from that gleaning some hope, getting information on what is it that we can do and can fight for and band together for so that we don't just get overwhelmed by the doom and gloom headlines. Uh, not to mention, you know, things that are just happening around us in real time regarding living on this planet. And so with that, I am really excited to introduce today. Our guest today is Rihanna Gunwright. She's a leading national voice in the fight for climate justice. She's also an architect of the Green New Deal, which is a big like deal, be a real big deal, and has been instrumental in shaping the conversation around climate policy in the United States. Rihanna is a Rhodes Scholar and a graduate of Yale, and she formerly served as an intern to one First Lady Michelle Obama. In 2019, she was included in Time Magazine's list of the top women fighting to end climate change. Welcome, Rihanna. So happy to have you here today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. 
Thanks so much. We're really glad you could be with us. Um, just looking at Yale, that was the road not taken. I was trying to decide, should I, that was, should I go to Yale or not go to Yale? And it was not as, uh, for a suburban kid, I was more drawn to Palo Alto than to New Haven in terms of uh, <laughs> those dynamics. So that was part of my reality. So that could be a whole separate conversation at some point. Um, so let's let's start with the with the your your journey and maybe you know yeah was part of that right in terms of you've been at the forefront of the climate policy work for you know quite some time and then in 2019 uh Alexandria ocasio cortez aoc right asked you to help craft what would become to become the green new deal um and i guess you're doing that work at the new consensus think tank um so I think now I was talking about how, you know, somewhat jokingly, but not in terms of how I'm not that connected to the environmental movement, but I don't think um, it's not a place there's been a ton of black folks. And so I'm very yeah. curious about kind of your journey, how you got to this place where you focused on it substantively and then you came to play a role. How did you get on AOC's radar as somebody that she would want to have her help craft the uh, craft, uh, uh, Green New Deal? Yeah. Um, so how I started working on the Green New Deal, how I started working on climate justice are very connected, not one in the same, but not that <laughs> not that far apart. Mm -hmm. So um, so my background, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. And what I later found out is a frontline community or at least a community where um, we have much higher than normal levels of air pollution. So mm -hmm. um, I think I look when I look less, it was something like four times the WHO recommended amount of something called PM 2.5, which is just a kind of particulate matter that is like very harmful, in particular to like respiratory systems. And so I didn't know that growing up. No one in my family knew that. We didn't live near a factory or anything. So no one, I think, really considered it. And also environmental justice or environmental racism. Uh, that was just something that we didn't know about. And so growing up, like asthma was so common that we thought, I grew up thinking it was a childhood disease. I thought mm. people just like got asthma. And multiple kids on my block had asthma. I was out of school. I want to say starting like fourth grade to eighth grade, I was out of school for like a week every spring because my asthma would get so bad that I would like end up with a cold that turned into bronchitis. I'd have to be on like a nebulizer. Like it was a whole thing and it was like clockwork. And I didn't actually see that as abnormal. And in fact, I felt lucky because I knew kids who had asthma who like ended up in the hospital all the time, right? Days and days out of school. And, you know, I also felt lucky because my mom ran her own nonprofit. And so looking back, she was like, a, she was a single mother, so it was definitely hard. But looking back, you know, I felt lucky because she could take off to take me to the doctor, right? Like, you know, other kids, their moms might be doing like retail work or some sort of shift work and they couldn't get off. Or if they got off, it was like a big deal because they're getting in trouble at work or they're missing checks or whatnot. So I say all that to say that like environmental injustice I guess has been part of my story for a long time, but I didn't know 
that. And I didn't know what to call it and no one around me did. And so I grew up, went to school, went to college, went to Yale in Connecticut. And it was there that I started sort of being interested in public policy. I I didn't know policy was a field. I didn't know something you could work in, but Mm -hmm. I was always really interested in sort of poverty and especially like through high school and getting older, interested in like the reasons why I was seeing the things that I was seeing. Um, And my mom, like I said, had a nonprofit. So I knew that like direct service wasn't enough, right? And I, I remember my mom talking all the time about how she was doing her best, but like, these problems would keep happening. She ran after school, like nonprofit, the, you know, the gaps in reading and test scores, just like the shape of the schools where she was working, how that would keep happening unless something structural happened. So I got interested in policy, but I was always interested in, I always worked in policy around poverty. My first interest was welfare policy. And I have like a strange career trajectory in the sense that I have worked in policy in some capacity since it was my first job out of college was at a think tank. And so I've stayed there, but like I said, I did a lot of types of policy, but it wasn't until I started working in Detroit at the Detroit Public Health Department that I actually learned about environmental racism. Because if for folks who don't know who are listening, Detroit is like a hotbed for environmental racism and injustice. So when I was there, there was like an incinerator in the middle of the city Flint was still in the midst of being resolved, quote unquote, right? Like the cover-up had been identified, you know, lead levels had been identified. So that was happening, but we were also, as a result, people were thinking about lead more. And so that was the same in Detroit. So you're finding like higher levels of lead in housing. The issue in Detroit is really housing, not so much water. Um, You have like a campaign against blight where the city's demolishing houses, but older housing stock with like asbestos and lead in it. And it's going in the air and the soil, et cetera. So all of that was going on. And that's when I first learned about environmental injustice. That's when I first learned that, in fact, there are not supposed to be half of the kids on the block having asthma. (laughs) That is not natural, but that is the result of pollution. And then from there, I ended up working on the Green New Deal. My boss at the time, who ran the health department, Abdul El Sayed, left, ran for governor. I became his policy director. So I managed our whole portfolio. Big part of that was environmental policy, climate policy, and environmental justice. And then, of course, we didn't when we lost to now Governor Whitmer in the primary. And I was, uh, to put it inelegantly, I was looking for a job. And some folks at New Consensus reached out to me, which was a new think tank founded by organizers who had come out of Justice Democrats. And my boss was endorsed by Justice Democrats. Representative Ocasio-Cortez came out and stumped for us. I met her there. They liked our work on the Abdul campaign. We ran like a Warren-esque campaign in the sense that we did a ton of policy work, Mm -hmm. put out like over a thousand pages of policy. And they liked my work. um, And then we went from there. But the Green New Deal was like my first job that was explicitly about environmental justice and climate change. 
And the reason why they were actually interested in me was because my background was sort of across policy areas, that I was a bit of a generalist, but also that I had a strong background in social policy because the Green New Deal was about climate change, of course, but it was also about approaching climate change in a very particular way that was very grounded in like economic policy, industrial policy, and trying to put forward a holistic vision of sort of what is needed across the economy in terms of social safety net to support transition to renewable energy and away from fossil fuels. So people often are like, you've been here for a long time. I think it feels more like I've been here for a long time because I had to talk a lot. But um, Mm. but the Green New Deal was sort of my first how I got into the climate movement. And I have chosen to stay since the two are very intertwined. Let me ask you this. I'm fascinated and I'm so moved and inspired and grateful that somebody like you I mean, I'm, I'm sorry that that happened to you as a child, that you and your peers suffered asthma from uh, the this, this circumstances and, you know, the way that um, where you were living, and, but uh, where, where you have come from that and that you are somebody who is now part of the solution and in positions of leadership to voice the change. You have that lived experience. I'm so grateful. I wanted to ask you, you did touch upon this, but how do you help other people understand the term climate justice? What does it really mean and why is it so important? So there's a lot of definitions of climate justice around, but I think to me the most fundamental definition or the one that I sort of move on is an idea that one, we need to bear the burdens equally of the transition away from fossil fuels, but also try to bear the burden as equitably as possible when it comes to navigating the changes, the fallout, the sort of consequences of climate change. The inverse of climate justice or environmental justice is environmental injustice, which is sort of the status quo that we have here in the U.S. where Basically, you have a few things happening. You have the worst, most harmful parts of energy production centered in the communities with the least formal power in marginalized Black, Brown, Indigenous communities. And then sort of right next to that, you have because of systemic injustices, because of racial wealth gap, all sorts of things, histories of colonialism, the list goes on. You have people of color, uh, particularly those who are low income or otherwise marginalized, say they're disabled or even just women, are disproportionately vulnerable to the impacts of like extreme weather and climate events uh, and are going to have the least resources to both recover and to proactively protect themselves or adapt. And you're going to see those communities be far more vulnerable to extreme weather events. And then, you know, and I think the last thing that is sort of emerging and what I kind of talk about in the essay is this other danger that as we shift to low carbon energy and goods, that you see the same kind of 
replication of oppression in these new systems and in these new industries and then the the sort of like next version of the economy that is supported by that so i would say like those are all those are to me like the three strands of climate injustice that i think about and so climate justice is essentially the the inverse of that we're going to get into that. I want to, in, in, in a second, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the Green New Deal. And as, uh, I was amused a little bit when you're talking about the running for office in, in Michigan and having this thousand page plan. So when I, I ran for school board in San Francisco way, way back in 92, and we, the centerpiece of my campaign was we had a five year plan. It was this printed out document and we would give it to people. And it was a multi page thing. So. Glad to see I was in a good company in terms of <laughs> yeah. nerding out and how you do electoral politics. So in terms of the Green New Deal, can you actually describe a little bit? I know it became like a big boogeyman of the yeah. right. And so then it got, it got caricatured as well. And so what actually is it both actually, because it was a piece of legislation, but also conceptually, yeah. what is the Green New Deal? So the Green New Deal is, it's a multi-pronged thing. So I'll talk about it in like three ways. So the first and is a congressional resolution that was introduced in 2019 by Representative Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Markey. A lot of people get confused because it was never an actual bill. There have been Green New Deal bills since introduced. So like the Green New Deal for public housing or the Green New Deal for schools, right? You'll hear different versions of Green New Deal legislation, municipal state at the federal level, it is, and some federal bills, but when we introduced it, it was a resolution. The second thing that it is, is essentially the resolution was based on a policy proposal that's captured in the resolution. But the Green New Deal is essentially, it started out when we first started, when I was hired, the idea was we need an economic mobilization on the scale of World War II to combat climate that at the same time as it moves towards decarbonization is revitalizing the what some people refer to as the real economy, which is essentially just like you're making the economy is based on the production of actual goods and services, not financialization. Mm-hmm. So you're just not making money out of money. So through revitalizing the real economy that is happening uh, also through like public investment and, and industrial policy. So that was, again, that was another shift the Green New Deal proposed, which was when we came out, a lot of people don't remember. But at the time, the main thing people were proposing as like the sort of gold standard climate policy was a carbon tax. So the Green New Deal Hmm. was essentially arguing that we need a solution that's like a lot less neoliberal. That's about the government taking proactive responsibility for both addressing climate change, but also investing in ways that direct the economy towards the production of renewable and clean energy and low carbon goods, and not just through sort of nudges, but through actual public investment, not just shifts to the tax code only. And then the the really central part so that's sort of like the overall frame. But the, the other big departure in the Green New Deal was that we were really focused on pushing forward a nexus of sort of like jobs, justice, and the environment. So by that, we also, the Green New Deal was designed um, 
to approach decarbonization in a way that would create millions of jobs. And that also had all of the scaffolding. So the Green New Deal talks about like support for unions, increasing wages, federal jobs guarantee. We talk about healthcare. The idea was that we need to make sure that these jobs are good paying, high quality jobs that are also nestled within the sort of infrastructure that can support the benefits of the shift being shared by all Americans. And also that is that unlike basically every other economic mobilization in U.S. history, actually the Green New Deal argues that we need to do decarbonization in a way that is reparative of systemic injustices and is designed to not repeat those, to change those sort of power relationships or to help change those sort of power relationships, particularly when it comes to economic relationships and the economy, but socially as well. But that that has to be like a guiding principle of how the green transition is shaped. And I think sort of all of that also started a conversation uh, that continues now about what the green transition should do, how it should be structured, and like who should benefit from it and what do those benefits look like. The idea that we would even have a green transition that's like proactively structured by, you know, public intervention or law or whatever, that was not even in the conversation in 2019 when the resolution came out. So that was another, I think, really big, part of the Green New Deal. And then the last thing that it evolved into is a movement, right? So we have the climate movement, sort of the overall climate movement, but even within that, there is a sort of smaller movement for Green New Deal. So you have like Gulf South for a Green New Deal, you have local, there's like a Green New Deal coalition in Illinois, right? There's local groups that have organized around who've been like inspired by the vision of a Green New Deal and have organized to bring that forward. But you also have a lot of the youth climate movement, for instance, also being their vision of like what they want climate policy to do is like deeply shaped by the Green New Deal. So you also have this movement aspect of it where it's both a proposal that's like shaping movement action and also the like basis of a subsection of the climate movement that is really focused on achieving a Green New Deal. Right. Yeah, and it's fascinating because I even like I was, my question actually mentioned legislation, so I didn't even fully fully appreciate that it was a resolution and not legislation. And even the way you're talking about it, and I don't think I fully appreciated the model that it offers for the movement in terms of for progressive people, that how you can meld uh, the platform that comes with being an elected official, certainly a member of Congress, and obviously OC is an enormous platform, and then use that to lift up a concept yeah. and a policy idea without necessarily having all of the you know, legislation and then having that interface right. with building a movement. You don't see a lot of that within the yeah. progressive side. And so that's, those are elements I think of that are actually quite... And the um, thing that I, all of that is really important and something that still grinds my gears to this day is that we designed the Green New Deal to do that. Because one thing that we all sort of working on the Green New Deal felt strongly about is that policy all starts from like a worldview, some sort of model of what things should be, what is 
what constitutes good, what constitutes bad, what. And so the Green New Deal is really at its core. It was always about creating a new sort of worldview and model that shapes climate policy going mm-hmm. forward and sort of and reshapes the narratives, the conversation and also the movement for climate action. I mean, even down to a lot of the ways that we talked about, and I know in my own work on the Green New Deal, was designing the Green New Deal to have, or elements of it to have appeal in the um, context of a recession, which economists were already talking about was in the works. And, you know, so when COVID-19 happened, we didn't obviously know that was going to happen and that was the shape a recession was going to take. But that created the sort of, it helped create the foundation for all the talk about like green recovery. And so a lot of that, yeah, was intentional to not just put forward a piece of legislation, but something bigger that would help shape what came next. Rihanna, I just want to thank you so much. I wanted to also sort of pivot a bit, This is, but it's all related to kind of really want people to know about and check out your recently published article that we talked about. Again, it was an essay in Hammer and Hope titled, Our Green Transition May Leave Black People Behind. I hope everyone listening will go read it. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. For those who don't know about the publication, sorry, Steve, did you want to say something? I was just going to say about the publication, <laughs> and then you were I'm way ahead. Ahead, so <laughs> I got it. I got it. Yes. For those who don't know about it, Hammer and Hope is a new magazine, uh, online magazine focused on black politics and culture, and it's really uh, it's excellent. It's founded by Jen Parker, who is a former New York Times opinion editor, and also co-founded by scholar and author and activist Kianga Yamahata Taylor. Oh, I'm sorry, Charlene. Can I just say yeah. one more thing on the on the hammer and hope piece, so people to know? Because there are often times in the life, the movement, et cetera, people behind the scenes doing really the critical heroic work that then becomes manifested in public. And so, uh, Jen Parker is really one of these people. She was at the New York Times doing the work of trying to get people of color's voices on the That's op-ed right. pages of the New York Times. And that she got um, Tram Nguyen from Virginia, Alejandra Gomez from Lucha, got pieces published in the New York Times, voices that wouldn't normally do that. And that was really her work. And then she went from there to create Hammer and Hope as the next phase of her work around lifting up these kinds of voices. And that's, um, Rihanna, how we got connected to you. We actually reached out to Jen. Jen says, like, you should get Rihanna to come on. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I'm one of those voices that Jen got published in the New York Times which I don't know if that would have happened without her. So yeah, she's brilliant and such a big part of getting these ideas out in ways that just give them more validation and credence. And it's just a great platform now that like your piece, for example, it's so brilliant. It's so readable. It is, it's long. It's not a thousand pages, but it's long (laughs) and it's, (laughs) <laughs> it's long and it's meeting, but it's highly readable and your voice is really great. And, and it, so you get into mm-hmm. some really, you know, meaty, substantial stuff. But then I really appreciate that in it, you're also like dropping some F-bombs because you're feeling, I'm feeling your anger, but it's very authentic. It's very appropriate. And I don't think, you know, there aren't enough platforms out there. You, we have institutions like the New York Times. They're not going to give you the freedom to do exactly that at all. So I just appreciated that they've created a platform that doesn't exist out there for these uh, voices like yours. In your piece, you talk about the Inflation Reduction Act of 
2022, also known as the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. So for those who are not totally familiar with it, has been called the most significant climate legislation in U.S. history, even though it doesn't have the word climate in it, but it's part of it. Your essay however, does shed light on how, despite this historic legislation, one step forward, black people are still being left out of the country's green transition. So for that population and others, not exactly a step forward where everybody got to you know, be brought forward. And I wanted to have you explain to our listeners, what are some of your biggest concerns surrounding the Inflation Reduction Act? And what are some ways we as a nation can remedy those issues now? Yeah, so <laughs> I'm always like, there are three buckets. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm all about buckets. <laughs> buckets helps me understand stuff. I'm like, you know, like at school, I can picture on the, the, I chalk, know. the chalkboard. I see buckets. So give yeah. it, give it, give us, give it to us. I have three more buckets. For you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the first one, so the IRA, both in how it was passed. And some of the things in it, they have some structural racism built in. So the first is like there were a set of compromises that Senator Manchin extracted in order for him to support the Inflation Reduction Act, which could not have passed without his support. And so among those, uh, they're very uh, all of the concessions that he requested, most of which he has gotten, not all of them were very, very focused on like fossil fuels, carving out a place in the Inflation Reduction Act for policies friendly to fossil fuels. Two of these things, one is the approval of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which runs from like West Virginia to North Carolina and is going to disproportionately impact low-income white Black and Indigenous communities, including like actually they, I think it's in North Carolina, one of the compressor stations is actually located likely on purpose because this is, that's what fossil fuel industries do. They often locate facilities in low-income Black and Brown communities. Long history, lots of evidence of them doing this. So they did it again and it's like in the one majority Black like township the compressor station. Um, But more than that, the Mountain Valley pipeline had been blocked because of the effects that it would have. It had been sort of, there were a few court challenges, but it's going to have some really negative effects on, in particular, like water quality, soil quality. So that was approved as one of the concessions. And the other concession that to me is one of them sort of most structurally racist was if you're going to hold leases for offshore wind, the federal government also has to hold leases for oil and gas drilling. And they reopened areas in the Gulf that had been closed because of local court challenges. And of course, the Gulf is probably the area that faces the most sort of environmental injustice in the country. That's where you have like a really, really high concentration of fossil fuel facilities, petrochemical facilities. That's where Cancer Alley is, right? And so essentially to get the biggest investment in climate legislation passed, we had to agree to sort of once again sacrifice the Gulf Coast to move that forward. And then the other part, like there's other ways in which the actual provisions of the IRA have features that make them racist in the sense that they are going to like direct benefits and access to clean energy, largely to middle-class white homeowners and leave a lot of other people out. 
Um, and so, for instance, like the tax credits for individuals that can be used to electrify homes or to buy low carbon goods for homes like electric stoves or heat pumps, whatnot, those are non-refundable which means that low-income families are cut out. And also there's no provisions to allow them to be available to renters. So that also means that renters are left out and that's disproportionately people of color. And so you have things like that, that are just built into how the bill works. That means that Black people not only will have far less access to those provisions and thus less money, less support to electrify, but also doesn't sort of, the bill doesn't consider some of the extra hurdles that people might hit, that Black people in particular might hit. So, you know, things like if a low-income homeowner is able to access those credits, where would they get the upfront capital? And then will their home value go up and their property taxes go up and they could be priced out, right? So these are sort of things that if you are trying to build a policy that benefits Black people or at least is equitable, you would think about, but the IRA doesn't for a number of reasons. And I would point out, and I try to talk about in the piece, it's not an issue of just individual malice or even mostly individual malice. It's a recognition of, or it's sort of a result of the ways that structural racism constrains our systems and sort of the ways that we both imagine policy, but also just shows the ways that like racism is still profitable. And one of the things that we rely on to move things forward politically in our political process in particular. And so you have that going on. It's also about just fossil fuels. Like fossil fuels are inherently environmentally unjust, though at least the way that the industry has been developed. And so a lot of what you see in the IRA too is like a trying to balance a shift to renewable energy, but also to do this sort of what people call an all of the above energy policy, which is to also figure out a vision of the transition that allows fossil fuels to still be present and be a player. And that is sort of just a bargain with injustice because of the ways that those industries are structured and the ways that they have been structured to behave. And so then I think the other two buckets that are related is just, like I said, what you see is a result of the systems that we have and the structural racism there. And one of the things that I try to call out in the piece is that like a lot of why we end up in this place is that we still treat racism like it's something that only has a cost to Black people. But to the greater whole, there's it is a cost worth paying or it doesn't have any sort of like overall detrimental effects. And also sort of the third bucket is that and actually, if when you design climate policy or policy related to like the economic transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy, when you craft that with Black people in mind, you actually end up crafting a vision and a green transition that is capable of both benefiting far more people and also generating like the sort of mass political support that climate action requires. So... That's the piece in a nutshell. It's kind of long, but those are the sort of three threads that run throughout. Right. Well, as you say, it's a big yeah. challenging issue that we have to deal with. Um, so we are uh, running up against time, but I just wanted to kind of circle back a little bit to what I had 
you know, started out with a little bit is what can and should people do, right? Because all these different dimensions to this, this is movement, the world's, what do you think, the planet is boiling, I think is the phrase that you used. And so what kind of guidance do you give to an average person um, around what they should, how they can make a contribution? To... Yeah, I mean, to the average person, I would say, one, individual action is important and good. You know, like you should compost if you can. You should learn how to recycle. That sort of thing is helpful. <laughs> like making decisions that are more sustainable is good. But I would always encourage people to shift some of that focus. And I think sometimes the like guilt people feel about it to mm -hmm. much more political action, right? The idea of a carbon footprint is something that oil companies came up with to make you worry about what you do and not what they do. And so um, <laughs> with that in mind, I think that do those things, but also focus on like, make sure that you're voting for people who care about climate change, right? Like, um, also a lot of things related to climate change or moving to renewable energy are happening at the local and state level. So be curious about those issues, even in your local elections. The other part that I would say is that like, if you can access the IRA benefits to electrify, explore that. Like it's not the piece is not saying that like no one should engage with the IRA. That's not the point. These things will move us forward. It's helpful. So I would say explore that, but at the same time, also explore concepts like publicly owned renewables. There's different campaigns for publicly owned renewables in different places. There's a big one in Maine, but see if there's like community solar, do what you can on an individual level, but move out your scope and really start thinking about climate change as a political issue. Mariana, we're so glad that you were here today and that you're at the table, that you're one of those voices and you're getting out there. And where can people keep up with you? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, this piece was, I felt like I popped out from nowhere. I had, I'm in the midst of, my first child, he's one. So oh, I'm a lot less, thank oh, wow. you. I'm a lot less out yes. <laughs> there yep. than I was, but you can follow <laughs> me on Twitter. My handles are guns. I definitely will. I post anything that I write or work on um, there. So that's probably the best place to keep up with me. All right. Well, thank you so much um, for joining us. I really appreciate you joining us really the work that you're doing lifting up these issues and really trying to move this movement forward we're very very grateful for that oh of so, course thank, thank you for you. having me that's all the time we have for today thank you for listening to democracy in color with steve phillips please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts sharing with your friends tweeting at democracy color and at steve p tweets and finding us at democracy in color on facebook or instagram you can also keep up with all things Demco by subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. It helps others to find our show. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production. Our producer is Olivia Parker. Fola Onifade is our staff writer and associate producer. Charlene Chang is our editor and co-host. Special thanks to April Elkier for quality check work. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, recycle, compost, and think about climate. Until next time, 
Peace of faith.